Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the week's most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm editor Drew Cherry, joined by executive editor John Fiorillo. Another busy week in seafood news, and uh, we're going to talk about just a couple of stories today and then be joined at the end by Ignacio Kleiman, who is going to talk to us about mergers, acquisitions, and the climate for consolidation around the globe in seafood. Stay tuned for that at the end. Uh, first, we decided to talk a bit about some uh, some numbers coming out of the food service sector. Now, we've We've spent a lot of time uh, discussing retail and some really, really sour numbers. Um, but food service is one where the bag is a little bit more mixed uh, in both good and bad ways. Now, we all know COVID decimated the food service sector, but then we saw a strong bounce back after that uh, and some some opportunities opened up for seafood. Um, but some new, uh, some new data and some reporting from our colleague, John Evans shows that maybe long-term might not be as bright as, uh, as we all might hope for the sector. Yeah, I think the, the part that's most concerning, um, if you're a seafood, uh, company is that during the pandemic, we lost, uh, 110,000 restaurants by uh, one estimate, uh, by National Restaurant Association estimate. That's bad enough, obviously. Uh, some of them temporarily, some of a lot of them permanently. And the ones that we did lose were where seafood really stars as the center of the plate uh, attraction or protein. And those are the white tablecloth, the higher end spectrum of the food service sector. Um, and those have been very slow to recover, um, the, uh, you know, to reopen in any sense or anything like that. They're, they're generally, you know, one person or, you know, single operators. They're not part of a chain. So, you know, the, there's a lot of risk opening a restaurant, obviously. So, um, and with money tight, you know, this year didn't help either. So, uh, upon losing that valuable segment to some degree, we did, however, see another end of the spectrum really start to blossom as a result of COVID. And that's basically fast food and what they call fast casual, which is like a Chipotle or, you know, somewhere you could go in and sit down, but get, you know, kind of quick service food. Um, those have been doing well. Those have been growing in number. There are more of those uh, quick service restaurants today than before the pandemic. The challenge there, however, is that seafood doesn't there's not a lot of seafood at, at that level. I mean, there's obviously fish sandwiches in the fast food um, arena. Lots of shrimp kind of gets thrown in as ingredients in fast casual, you know, shrimp tacos, that type of stuff. Um, and there and there are others, but it it it's not a place where seafood stars uh, like it does in in the higher end, and 
you know, at the high-end restaurants, it can command much bigger prices, much better prices. So um, that's kind of the backdrop for where we are right now. Uh, and then we'll see we'll see how this year unfolds. Um, most of the projections for growth are very tepid in the 1%, 2% range tops. Um, now, they may set um, uh, a value record, uh, but you have to build in inflation and, you know, menu pricing into all that. But it, it, when it comes to actual growth uh, of the sector, it's it's going to be pretty, pretty flat this year. So, um, you know, it's probably not the forecast seafood uh, suppliers want to hear, but um, that's that's the present state of the state, so to speak. Well, and I wish the news were better in other countries, but unfortunately it's not. And in some cases it's, uh, it's worse. And, you know, most of the analyses of the restaurant and food service sectors uh, around the globe tend to highlight as the number one cause of any, any drop off uh, the inflation in prices. Now i I found very interesting in, in John's reporting, um, there was a state of the seafood market report. It surveyed 250 food service operators on the biggest barriers to increasing seafood oper- uh, seafood offerings. And it was quite fascinating. You know, the 49% of them said food costs and higher menu prices were uh, a barrier. Not a whole lot the industry can do about that. That's, that's something that uh, you can't just simply start um, you know, having your, your company go under so that you can meet the, the needs of a, of a consumer. There's, that's just a, a fact. However, you know, what I thought was interesting, and I think this, this goes, again, globally, are the, the issues that, can, uh, that, that the seafood industry can do something about. And there's interesting um, interesting things on there that the that the uh, food service operators said. Uh, they said they had challenges sourcing fresh seafood consistently, uh, lack of recipe ideas or or menu item inspiration. Uh, those can be met. Those those can be overcome. Issues like sustainability and food waste. Um, you know, those to me, the seafood industry has a very good sustainability story uh, compared to other proteins. And so, and food waste as well. I think there's a, a, a re- very strong case it can be made um, about uh, about seafood being a more uh, eco-friendly option to to menu. But for whatever reason, that's not really getting through to food service operators. So there is a there's a messaging issue here as well that I see. Whether it's marketing or outreach or giving customers inspiration, it does seem. I take away from this that there's a little bit of um, flatness and in, in inspiration, basically, uh, among food service operators for what to do with, with seafood. Well, and that that's really interesting because you see in, in John Evans' story, uh, he talked to analysts and he talked to distributors. And um, what, what they said was, you know, um, suppliers and operators need to get together on innovation. And when you think about the shift I just talked about a little earlier from from a, a, the higher end element of the food service to the lower end, 
um, the lower end doesn't have chefs, so to speak. I mean, what they are is they're restaurants who just produce, you know, what's already kind of ready to go. They throw it in a fryer. They do whatever they have to do. They assemble a burger, whatever. Um, that area is where innovation can make a huge difference. Um, and I think, uh, you know, reading through John's story and some of the comments, I think that's what these operators are are looking for. And that's that's surely what the seafood companies will have to address if they want to stay in the these new growing segments um, that that they're facing right right now. Now, it is uh, the Lent season, which continues to be uh, a, a time of year where seafood sales spike uh, in uh, majority Catholic countries. But in the U.S., that has remained a big season for all kinds of reasons. Part of it's religious, but then it's almost become kind of a, a tradition, I guess you could say, John, that it's just this is when a lot of restaurants do their promotions um, and and uh, and try to get consumers to into their uh, into their doors. One sector that always benefits from this is the Alaska Pollock sector, and it does look like this year. And this is a, a some good signs for um, you know a, a segment of the of the industry that desperately needs <laughs> desperately needs some help. Is you do see the fast food chains that have. Uh, white fish sandwiches that have your, you know, your fillet of fish and whatever Burger King calls theirs. Um, but you see that they're actually doing a lot more. And the uh, Pollock Association, the genuine Alaska Pollock producers, um, they've said that they're uh, this is the most that they've they've seen since pre-COVID pandemic. So that's probably a good sign. But you know, we're not seeing the same promotions yet on shrimp. Um, and, uh, that's kind of an area too, that, that needs to really, I think food service operators really need to, to start kicking back up. Um, if they're going to start, uh, if the, the shrimp industry is going to have any hope of, of seeing more recovery. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, uh, Lent started on February 14th. It, it ends on March 28th. Um, so, you know, it's roughly 40 days. Uh, and yes, just like years in the past, you're right. You're so right. It's it's become traditional now for restaurants in general, but especially fast food and fast casual to do a limited time offer of something seafood-esque, right? Um, and as you mentioned, it looks like it's it, it's shaping up to be a very strong year for uh the pollock guys in the sense that um there's a lot of promotion at the burger kings and the mcdonald's and and those of the fish sandwiches so uh we'll see what the numbers look like when it's all said and done but um that's that's really good news now to touch on shrimp I, you know, it's kind of amazing there isn't more shrimp promotion out there at food service right now, given the prices that we've seen the last half of last year and uh, the availability. But um, that it, it, it's not like there aren't shrimp promotions tied to, to Lenten season, but it almost feels like there should be twice as many as, as I've been seeing out there. So, um yeah, I, I'm not sure what all the reasons are for that, but 
I would I would say that's a situation. I, I mean, we all go out to restaurants. You know, it's um, it's just part of part of the day or whatever. Um, it's astounding how expensive restaurants are right now to me, and they have been for a long time. It just didn't happen overnight, but you can you can see how that shift from the higher end to the lower end had to happen because people just they can't go out and and drop the money uh on a restaurant meal that um the that the restaurants are asking for and the restaurants are asking for it not because they're gouging they got higher um, higher food costs, sure, and they've got higher uh, labor costs. Uh, minimum wages are hiking up, uh, you know, across the country and things like that. So I sit here and I wonder, okay, so will restaurant prices have to come down <laughs> or will consumers move up to them but just really not at the level they ever did? And that's kind of where we are right now. And huge, huge implications for seafood ultimately and the kinds of seafood that's sold, what's being processed, um, so many different things. So we'll keep a close eye on it. Turning to M&A, joining us on the podcast today is Ignacio Kleiman. He's the managing partner and founder of Antarctica Advisors. It's a boutique M&A seafood specialist. And Ignacio, we're asking you on the podcast today because we want to get some guidance and give some guidance to the industry. A lot of companies out there may be looking to sell out. The founder has been there for many, many years, maybe. The next generation isn't that interested in taking over. Companies looking for bolt-on acquisitions. So let's just start from the very basics. It's not like me putting a sign in front of my yard to sell my house. It's a little more complex than that, right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, it, it's not like, you know, it, it has some similarities to selling a house, but it's a hundred times more complex. You know, you have to, you know, first, obviously, you know, it's a, the, the whole topic of confidentiality. Uh, and, uh, and and second is, uh, you know, how, how to actually even execute something like this that has, you know, financial aspects, economic aspects, emotional aspects, strategic aspects, uh, you know, tax aspects uh, to it. So all of those facets of this process make it, you know, uh, you know, complicated, makes it long. But again, you know, that's why we're here to, to you know, uh, handhold people through this, uh, through this process. And then, you know, uh, it's the whole, I, you know, pinpointing of, you know, how much should I sell my company for? and what structure and how do I get paid? So all of those things have to be taken into account in addition to risk and finding the right buyer and taking care of your employees and your suppliers and your um, and your clients. You said something interesting there, emotional aspects. Tell us about that. Yeah, you, you guys know the industry very well. And most of the companies here that, that form the industry uh, they are either family-owned or founder-owned, and or, or they have a component of family ownership. Very few, you know, highly institutionalized or uh, listed companies uh, in in our industry. So I would say that uh, ninety percent of the transactions that we advise uh, on uh, are are family-owned, and therefore, 
you know, emotions uh, do play a role. Uh, and uh, and again, you know, part of what we do is to be, you know, a, a you know financial advisor, investment banker, and part is you know, uh, you know, trusted friend, you know, rabbi, and and whatever it, you know people need in order to make this transition, right? I mean, it's not easy sometimes to sell, you know, your own baby that you founded, you know, 20, 30 years ago, or or your father's company that you inherited and you grew. So uh, emotions do play a role, and uh, and and again, I think that uh, that's why also you know a, a player of our size it's a little bit more helpful than you know a large you know uh, uh, bank from Wall Street sometimes. So the M and A climate has been very interesting over the last several years. When you look back, say fifteen to twenty, it's kind of remarkable how fragmented the industry truly was, and uh, and that's changed dramatically. Uh, and seems to be speeding up in in uh, in recent years. But where are we in the life cycle of the industry consolidation, in your view? Yeah, I'm going to answer in, in two parts. First, you have to understand the structure of this industry, uh, and particularly from two different angles. One is seafood is really a collection of many different verticals that produce different types of seafood, uh, and they are in many cases, non-correlated, right? I mean, if you are a producer of uh, Vaname in Ecuador uh, and you are a, you know, a fishing company for cod in Iceland, uh, yes, they are both seafood, but they are absolutely unrelated to each other in, in any way, shape or form, pretty much. So uh, that is that is one one thing that makes this industry particular. Right, as opposed to other verticals in uh, animal protein, uh, such as pork, poultry, or or beef. Um, you know, the second thing is, you know, seafood is produced where seafood is produced, uh, but it's consumed in in most cases in in other markets. So it's 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 heavily exported, traded. You know, uh, in addition to that, is is processed. So, uh, you know, it's it's a very complicated, you know, both of those things, you know, merge together to have a very complicated uh, industry structure, you know, a complicated value chain as well. And and therefore that has, you know, over decades generated uh, different, uh, um, uh, many, 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 many different players, right? And, and as players also get bought out, others, you know, pop up as well. So I think that there is a long, I think that there's a lot of uh, runway. Uh, I think that there's a lot of runway still in terms of consolidation, uh, you know, both horizontally in, in the form of integration for the industry to become more efficient and also in terms of uh, the, the value chain itself. Ignacio, I'm, uh, as everybody knows, the cost of money has been high this past year or so. Um, and you know borrowing obviously is is expensive and i'm wondering what you see for you know the coming year as far as um you know interest rates and the ability to to borrow at reasonable rates yeah again um i think that 2023 was you know the 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 year where you know the m a market was hit the hardest because uh, there was no clear expectation on when the Fed was going to stop raising the cost of money. Uh, having said that, you know, it's it seems to be pretty clear 
that you know that cycle you know has reached a peak uh, and then the expectation is that now we are on the other side of the curve where you know over the next you know 12 to 18 months we're going to start seeing you know a decrease in the cost of money uh, so I think that that is going to be you know uh, very positive for the MA market uh, and uh, and we're going to see an acceleration of uh, of of, uh, of consolidation here, and I would say not only from uh, strategic players, but also I think that we're going to see a, a more aggressive comeback into the market of the uh, private equity uh, players as well. I mean, it was very, you know, for for a strategic player, for somebody from the trade, as as they are called as well. Uh, you know, yes, you know, the cost of money is relevant uh, because it affects their cash flow uh, and ability to execute, you know, and, and make acquisitions. Uh, but they tend to take a very long and strategic uh, view of their investments, and they have, in many cases, the capacity to generate synergies and savings. In the case of private equity, in many cases, they are just looking for the first platform to enter the industry, and therefore, uh, they don't benefit from that right at the beginning, so the cost of money hit them uh, harder. Ignacio, just taking us back to the process for selling a company. Indulge me for a second, if you would. We have Fiorella Seafood Company. We have a very, very aging founder in John Fiorillo. <laughs> so what, what is okay. your role when Mr. Fiorillo comes hobbling over to you saying, I think I'm ready to sell out, what steps do you take at the beginning of that process? Yeah, uh, the, the, the first thing that we would tell Mr. Aging uh, uh, Fiorillo, Mr. Fiorillo here, is you should have come to us when you were younger. <laughs> 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 and, you know, the, the, the truth is that when you have a family-owned or, or individual-owned company, uh, uh, the the importance of that individual or that family is is very relevant to the business itself, right? I mean, and and therefore, uh, in many cases, buyers uh, don't really like you know uh, uh, just you know writing a check and getting the the key to the house. They will ask you for some transitional period where you know that wisdom and experience and whatnot is passed on you know, uh, to to the new owner or to the more junior members of the existing management team or or, uh, or so, right? So, you know, the, the first thing is, you know, be conscious that, you know, it's not the same thing uh, and you're not in the same position of strength to negotiate when you are a 70-year owner, a 60-year-old owner or a 55-year-old owner. Uh, you know, the, the pressures are different. Uh, and when I say transitional period, you know, in many cases, you're talking about at least a couple of years and, and it's pretty standard to discuss even five, a five-year transition. So important for private owners to understand that. So that's what we would tell, we would have told Mr. Old, you know, aging Mr. Fiorillo here. Then you step in and how are you identifying who might be a potential buyer? Obviously, you've been doing this a long time. You have the yeah. network, but do you have a list of potential buyers on tap that you know are hunting yeah. or have come to you and told you they're looking for this or that? Yeah, let, let me let me take one step back because there's an in between, which is you know that comes before that question there, which is 
you know, the, the first thing that we have to do is, you know, identify uh, and agree on uh, the goals for the transaction, uh, right? Uh, are you are you trying to find a, a you know are you trying to monetize a hundred percent of your holdings? Are you trying to uh, are you trying to find you know a, a new house for your business or your employees? You know what what makes you what are the factors that affect that will affect your decision making? Are you trying to do something very quiet or are you trying to do something that is more open and, and then you can maximize uh, the the proceeds that you can get from uh, an eventual sale, right? I mean, th there are, there's there's a spectrum of uh, of options that you have, you know, from, you know, selling, you know, uh, totally partially in one shot, you know, in different stages, you know, and, and also, you know, what is the degree of flexibility as a seller that you will have through this process in order to get uh, as close as possible to what we call your ideal transaction, right? I mean, you have an ideal situation, and then you know uh, uh, the world is not ideal, right? And therefore you have to see what degree of flexibility you're going to have on, in the, in the different aspects of the transaction in order to uh, effectively find a solution that is acceptable to you as a seller. Uh, and in some cases is money, in some cases is growth, in some cases is you know immediate payment, in some other cases is you know uh, protecting the community. Uh, or, or the employees, or, or you know, having family members remain in the business. Uh, there, are, there are a number of factors there that have to be taken into account. So it's not a, it's not a straightforward. It's, it's all very, very much tailor made. And, and listening to your client uh, is very important in this case. I mean, uh, when you're doing a more corporate-like, you know, straight spin-offs, uh, many of those factors don't, don't count. But when you're dealing with founder own or family owned companies they do so now uh, uh, let's assume that we we already established and agreed with our client on on what those goals are uh, only then we can start the process of identifying who the potential or the right potential buyers would be and, and on that front also the world is not ideal once again and somebody who you know last year may have been a perfect buyer uh, you know, this year they may not have the appetite, you know, financial capability, time, uh, market conditions or whatnot to be present uh, or, or to be a viable buyer. So it's important, uh, you know, to to know, you know, as many people in the industry as possible to understand very well what, you know, this universe of potential buyers is is thinking you know, what their timing is, what their appetite is and whatnot, so that you can really narrow down the number of people that you reach out to and uh, maximize also the the chances that, you know, the people you are contacting are going to be interested in the transaction that you're bringing to the market, right? Under the terms that you're also bringing the, the transaction to the market. Ignacio, tell us about valuation. Um, a lot of times you'll uh, you'll you'll read about transactions. It's X times EBITDA. So mm -hmm. explain to us how valuation of companies uh, works and in, in that process. Correct. Yeah, there, there are many there are many different ways to value a company depending on on the company's own uh, uh, you know characteristics. You know, it, it is a mistake just to go and say, oh, my company's worth, you know, seven times. 
because the question is seven times what and why uh, and why do you think that your company is worth that level right uh, and people uh, unfortunately because it makes our life more difficult sometimes uh you know they, they just go for the, the the you know they think that a rule of thumb is actually the way things always work you know and again some companies you can value primarily based on multiples which means how many times you know the the uh, the, the cash flow of the company a, a buyer would be willing to pay for it you know or, or similar to you know when you talk about you know price to earnings in public markets you know how many years in advance are you are you getting in your pocket uh and some other companies you you cannot do that i mean because then they otherwise they would show you know uh, as, as negative equity which is not reasonable for any seller uh, and you have to find other methods of valuation being you know capacity you know utilization quota value you know value of the fleet replacement values uh, you know, uh, premiums, you know, to book value, that there are different uh, tools and approaches that we use that uh, adapt to the company situation. So it's not, it's not a cookie cutter, cutter. it's really, you know, a, a little bit of a science uh, with a big background of art behind it. Um, and, and again, just to give you an idea, because you know, I know that people out there are always asking, but in any case, you know, what is the, you know, what is the value of my company or what is the multiple? Uh, to give you a rough idea, you know, multiples tend to be higher uh, uh, at the at the beginning of the value chain, you know, where, you know, seafood is produced, you know, raw materials, you know, either because you have quotas or because you have, you know, tracts of land that allow you to produce, you know, uh, uh, with certain levels of efficiency and, and those companies the raw material producers in general over time, right? Because of fluctuations as well, they tend to have also higher margins uh, and therefore they tend to have also, you know, higher barriers to entry. And in many cases, they demand more capital investment in order to be set up. So they tend to be, uh, and I keep on using the word, the, the, the verb tend, they tend to be more valuable than you know, uh, companies along the value chain or down the downstream the value chain, where you take that raw material from different suppliers and then you convert it. You know, and then again, it depends. You know, how much uh, uh, value you add to the product and how solid your margins and wide your margins uh, are. Uh, and then, as you move downstream uh, the value chain, you find the you know the pure importer distributor that just uh, brings, you know, a product in and out uh, and, and their value add is knowing the market. Uh, there's no product conversion, there's no raw material production and therefore, in general, you're talking about, you know, substantially narrower margins that tend to be more volatile as well. So it's a question of, and I'm going to be technical here, of quality of earnings as well, right? So it's how much, you know, how much profitability can you generate? How sustainable your profitability is? How protected is that profitability to market swings, right? Uh, and uh, and how fast are you able to grow this profitability? Uh, everything has to do with cash generation. It's not a question of, you know, who's got the largest top line, but is the one who's got the juiciest, you know, uh, uh, sustainable margins there. That's what makes you more or less valuable. Um, you know, and sometimes there are deviations to that that have to do with 
you know, uh, very strong brands uh, that may help you uh, protect, be more protected in the market. But in our industry, there are very few players that count on that. Where are you seeing the hot spots right now for consolidation in seafood? Where's the action going to come from in, say, the next one to three years? Yeah, I see. I see a lot of interest from, um, uh, uh, you know, raw material producers, either you know, uh, uh, fishing companies, aquaculture companies, uh, trying to. Uh, integrate downstream into the market and start controlling, reaching more control of, you know, where their product goes, how, you know, capturing more margin, disintermediating the market a bit uh, and, uh, and and getting closer to the end consumer, um, you know, uh, particularly, you know, from, from overseas players that they, they like the U.S. market because it produces, you know, it generates more growth than the, the European one. Um, there is going to be uh, also, you know, consolidation in distribution continues to be uh, even the largest guys are not that large. Uh, and and, they, and and there's a question of efficiency. You know, when you're in distribution, efficiency is everything because you don't have uh, uh, wide margins that allow you to make, you know, uh, big mistakes there. Right. You know, the, your, your margin of safety is lower. Um, I think that there's going to be eventually... Uh, 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 consolidation or changing ownership, you know, in uh, in land-based, uh, uh, you know, land-based companies. Uh, also, probably in, in in open sea companies that are bringing new species or new technologies. You know, there's there's a need for capital there. Some, uh, you know, to keep growing, to become more efficient, to grow faster, and to become commercial commercially viable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and something that you know we have not seen, and I've been, you know, uh, I've been saying for many years is, you know, uh, I think that strong North American companies, uh, they they have to, uh, uh, they have to be able to go and, and uh, integrate uh, uh, with overseas companies as well. I mean, it's been the case more of, of foreign players. You know, moving into the U.S. and very few in, in, in when I say U.S. sorry, North America, I should say U.S. and Canada, uh, and and very that you know, very few players uh, from North America and Canada really aggressively you know securing uh, resources overseas. It's been ninety percent one way, with a few exceptions. You know, somebody like a cook that's been the, going the other direction, right? So Ignacio, I'm, I um, I want to ask you about one particular region, uh, and that's Alaska. As as everybody's aware, uh, the major companies up there have been uh, having a tough time uh, the last year or more, and you know plants are up for sale, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what what's what's your perspective on what the what we might see there going forward over the next few years? Thanks for the question here. <laughs> uh, yeah, Alaska. Unfortunately, they they have had it, you know, uh, very hard, right? And, and 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 it's it's one of those historical times where many of the unrelated different species have been hit at the same time for different reasons, right? I mean, clearly, you know, the the you know salmon, uh, white salmon has been hit hard, you know, two years in a row, and 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 that 
you know, while the process of consolidation and efficientization there had started, they didn't have, I don't think, enough time to complete it before, you know, they got uh, they got uh, financially hit over the last couple of years, which is unfortunate because they were on the right track. So I, I think that it's going to be, you know, further consolidation there. The question is, you know, who's going to be in a position to consolidate with the other party or is it going to be, you know, merger of equals without cash? Just to achieve efficiencies and and whatnot, uh, you know the the the, the Pollock guys have been also uh, a little bit affected. You know the the Crab guys affected as well. You know uh, for local reasons or for you know global reasons. Uh, and and uh, you know uh, Amendment 80 companies, many of them are not making a lot of money. You know uh, COD has been affected as well. So it's a little bit of a rarefied environment. Uh, in Alaska, and and uh, and eventually, eventually will have to be worked up, right? But I don't think it is going to take just one season. I think it's going to take, you know, uh, uh, a, a lot of uh, um, creativity by the different players, uh, and maybe bringing some capital from the outside or some other operators from the outside to supplement, you know, the existing players with capital, but. The, the status quo of, of many years will have to change, and and that may require, you know, egos to be put aside and become more practical, or, or or people finally decide that they are going to exit the industry, right? Uh, but but there's a there's a need for efficiency and and re-strengthening the 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 capital base of the uh, of the Alaskan you know seafood industry there. Having said that as well, I, I think what is lacking dramatically is government support. Uh, it, it's 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 amazing how you know little government support they have been receiving, particularly in the in terms of adjusting the laws to new realities to allow companies to also become more efficient. Right? I mean, renew fleet, uh, build plant, change plants. You know, uh, you know, make it more energy efficient and whatnot. And while the private sector uh, uh, is obviously should always be in the lead, but uh, but it's you know it, it's you know it's it's difficult in the U.S. It's expensive, uh, and and that is not not really helping the economy there. I mean, uh, a Canadian company can go and and build you know a nice boat for seventy million dollars in Turkey, you know, with subsidies, or in 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 uh, Spain, you know, with subsidies or, uh, you know, market rates and here would cost you double in the U.S. So uh, they, they have it pretty tough. Ignacio, what other regions uh, do you see as kind of hot right now? What other uh, sectors or our countries are in a similar position to Alaska where there's a lot of activity and there's going to be a lot of consolidation? Um, I think at Europe, continues to consolidate uh they, they particularly because they are you know again their their operating costs have increased in terms of, of uh, labor costs energy costs and whatnot uh, and they don't enjoy high levels of growth so i think that they will continue to consolidate um i don't know the, the uk that much but you know again they are having a tough time as well uh, but I think we'll see we'll see more in uh, in in the U.S. I think there's a lot of opportunity in the U.S. to become much more efficient, right? Uh, and there are a lot of 
you know, medium-sized companies, each one of them, you know, with a full, you know, uh, administrative infrastructure, each one of them, you know, uh, uh, selling, you know, a, a few products as, a full, as opposed to a full portfolio, uh, you know, being price takers and, and being at the mercy of the, uh, uh, of the uh, retailers. Uh, so I think I think the, the U.S. market will be pretty dynamic over the next uh, a few years until it becomes more efficient. I mean, think about it. In 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 chicken, you probably have you know four leading players. In pork and uh, and beef, you have you know three four leading players. In seafood, you have you know fifty. So uh, that's why we do not have. Uh, any type of uh, uh, negotiating power with the retailers, right? I mean, see what happened, you know, with uh, in in Vaname shrimp, where you know the the retailers have been keeping prices high, and that you know put a lot of pressure on uh, on importers and distributors. Okay, putting you on the spot as we wrap up here, tell us about your most challenging deal. One of our our most. Uh, challenging deals it's it was actually uh uh it was actually uh, uh last year where we had you know it, it, we did a cross border deal where we had you know uh, uh in, you know international owners and 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 uh and uh, uh US based owners uh same you know with with international buyers and and uh, US based buyers and everybody had you know, different objectives, everybody had different, you know, tax situations, different views and whatnot. And and it was a transaction where you had to meet, you know, uh, uh, the needs of, of six different stakeholders in a transaction. So, uh, you, you know, it took a lot of uh, meeting together, uh, uh, a, a good transaction, a good structure, uh, but it was it was completed, right? Okay, so bottom line, is it a good time for Fiorillo to sell out of his seafood company? Uh, I think that is, I, again, you know, it, it wasn't a bad time last year. We were very busy, you know, 22 and 23. I think it's going to be an, a, a bit of an easier time, uh, you know, this year next. Um, you know, the, the timing has to do more with, uh, with, with owners' needs. Right. Um, you know, there's there's always access to capital. There's always access to financing and access to buyers. Uh, the the worst the worst thing that you can do is not sell when your company is doing well. If your company is doing well, that's that's the time to consider selling. You know, don't wait until you peaked and then the only thing that you have is you know an increased possibility of downside because buyers want. You know, uh, one companies with with bright futures, right? So you have to leave a little bit on the table for the next guy, uh, and and sell. You know, part of the of the part of what you sell is is, is hope, right, and future. So uh, I think you have to define, you know, your selling time based on that and based on your own personal needs. Like I said, you know, and then you know this closes a little bit the 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 uh, uh, the cycle of this conversation, which is, don't wait until you are you know 65, 70 because you feel great, uh, and you want to you know, uh, and and you can you you feel that you can put ten more years into the company. Think about the company, think about the employees, and think about you know the the additional time that you will have to dedicate the company even after you sell it. 
because you know buyers you know uh, you know part of the value of the company is your own knowledge and experience and buyers want to get that and and they do it through a transitional period there Ignacio, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. Well, that wraps up this week's edition of the IntraFish podcast. Remember, you can find us 24-7 on IntraFish.com, where we have coverage from all around the globe. If you are going to be at the Boston Seafood Show, make sure and register for our event, the Seafood Leadership Breakfast. That's on March 11th. We have a fantastic lineup of speakers we have highliner trident whole foods high v acme smoked fish Pittman seafood slade gordon the list goes on so go to intrafishevents.com and you can get your ticket there it is limited seating and it is filling up very fast okay folks also remember to subscribe to this podcast just go to apple podcast click follow and then every time we put out an episode it's going to go right to your phone you can of course listen directly onto our site if you do go to apple Podcasts or google play make sure and rate us we have thick skin if it's a low rating go for it if it's a high rating go for it but that helps other people find us thanks again everyone for joining us we'll talk to you next week